1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. If you're new, we're just walking right through the book of Kings. So this is the next passage. First uh, Kings 11, 1 to 13. You can find in front of the Bibles in front of you on page 291. It'd be good for you just to keep your Bibles open and just see as we work through this. We've been waiting for this moment. Down goes Solomon. First Kings 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods, after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Concubines would be a servant. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the father, as as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom of the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, and when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Some of the saddest, most tragic words in all of the Bible. What began with beauty and power and glory and Wisdom from God to love God and to love God's people. What began in that way, in the end, turns out that all of those things are turned in on Solomon himself and him serving other gods. That's how it ends. And not only was it tragic for Solomon, he was sad and tragic for all of Israel. Not only because of the consequences of Solomon's sin would result in the tearing apart of Israel, but look down there in verse 33. Referencing Israel itself, we learned that they followed Solomon's idolatry as well. Verse 33, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. And so, friends, as the king goes, so goes the nation. Similarly, as to how parents, pastors, and professors goes, so goes those in their charge. Every single person, of course, is responsible for their individual decisions. There's no free passes, no excuses. But Solomon made it easier for Israel. He created the kind of environment that normalized idolatry, such that it became strange and even countercultural to follow the Lord and his commands. Friends, I can't think of a more scathing or salacious account to warn us of the idolatry that so much surrounds us in our day. Big idea from the passage this morning is clear. You become what you love, not necessarily what you say you believe. You become what you love, not necessarily what you say you believe. James K. Smith says in his book, the center of gravity of the human person is Located not in the intellect, but in the heart. Why? 
Well, because the heart is the existential chamber of our love, and it is our loves that orient us towards some ultimate end. It's not just that I know some end or believe some end. More than that, I long for some end. I want something and want it ultimately. It is my desires, he says, that define me. My desires that define me. In short, he says, you are what you love. Friends, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what Jesus himself teaches. You are not necessarily what you say you believe. You are, and by the way, you are becoming what you love. Which is why, by the way, the greatest two commands are centered not on mere confession, but on affection, on love, love for God, love for neighbor. And we see that in Solomon. Brothers and sisters, I love and trust the Bible. I increasingly love and trust the Bible. The more I study it, the more I see how it operates in the world. And the Bible uniquely and precisely explains why there's a gap between what people say they believe and what they actually do. The Bible uniquely explains that gap in ways that no other book, no other religion, no other worldview does. Be it Solomon or ourselves, or be it Solomon or ourselves, that gap between what we say we believe and what we do, that gap exists because we love things more than we love God. And that's the definition of idolatry. Loving something more than God. And when that happens, when we take even good things like jobs or families or even ministry itself and make it ultimate, it becomes something that ultimately destroys us. Because nothing, friends, is of greater worth than God himself. Thus the command from God in the first command to have no other gods before him. You become what you love, not necessarily what you say you believe. We learn that from Solomon. Solomon, it says, loved many foreign women. Verse 2 says Solomon clung to these women. How? How did he cling to them? In love. So in other words, this is not like a marriage alliance like he did with Pharaoh's daughter. He loved these. I I interpret that in the context here that there's even sexual desire bound up in this. And this love of many foreign women is exactly the opposite of what we read from Solomon earlier. Do I remember that? And I think the author's doing this very intentionally. 1 Kings 3 3. 1 Kings 3 3 said Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David. So earlier he was doing well, right? Solomon's behavior at that point was directed by the Lord. So Solomon's behavior was directed by who he loved. When he loved God, he followed God's commands and he prospered. When he loved many foreign women, he followed foreign gods. And God's blessing was lifted and destruction followed. Beloved, behavior must be traced back to what you love in order to determine what you are becoming. So we need, I want to be clear about this, we need confessionalism. We need that. We need a statement of faith that is necessary, that is critical, I would argue. We need a confessed doctrine that we say we believe. But friends, that's just the beginning. It's only the beginning. More than a confession, we need affection for those doctrines. And more importantly, for the God of those doctrines. And only then, when we love the God of those doctrines, as it were, when we love Him, only then will our behavior become in line with those beliefs. And so since we're talking about Solomon Turning away from the Lord, let me go ahead and answer a question I know that many of you have asked me. This question about Solomon turning away. I do not believe, nor does this church believe, nor do the elders of this church believe that the Bible teaches that someone can lose their salvation. I do not believe that is biblical. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Solomon, though, is operating inside of the old covenant, which has since passed away. But friends, even if it didn't, Jesus taught us, didn't he, that there are four kinds of people in the world whose hearts are rooted in four kinds of soils. And two of those soils would be indicating those that, whose hearts were in some ways uh, in a kind of soil that appeared to love God and his gospel for a short time only to have the things of the world and the cares of the world to wither them away. Not putting their heart in the actual soil where they endure. And we see this time and again. We see this in Judas. We see this in Demas leaving Paul and Going back to Thessalonica out of love for this world, we see this in 1 John 2.19 where it says they went, referencing these antichrists, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, 
they would have continued with us. But they went out. In other words, they left the faith. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So their leaving indicates their actual heart. And so, friends, if you want more about this idea, go back and listen to my sermon on that exact verse. You can find that on our website, 1 John 2, 19. And so was Solomon saved? Well, friends, it doesn't appear as though he was. He did not persevere to the end. But I'll entrust his salvation to God. I don't know. Perhaps he repented at the end. I don't know. But that, but what is clear, the author is not intending necessarily to answer that question. The author is more intent on helping us understand something, that you are and you become what you love. That's what the author wants to direct our attention to. And Solomon loved many foreign women, a thousand of them. He loved many foreign women more than God. And the text says that they turned his heart away from God. And I want to be clear, friends. Yes, the women have culpability in this, but ultimately Solomon is culpable for his idolatry, not the women. The women will be, these foreign women will be dealt with for their own idolatry. But this is Solomon's culpability. He is responsible for his sin. We learn in the passage that his heart was not wholly true to God. Going back to what Joey mentioned last week, his heart was divided. His heart was not wholly true. So apparently Solomon never denies the Lord. But instead, he just adds these other gods to his worship, which is what a lot of people do today. Maybe they don't deny that Christ is Lord, but they will add to that the possibility that God receives the worship of all different false religions. Or as is even more common and even more easily deceptive, people might claim to be Christians and yet approve or participate in things that God clearly calls sin. More often than not, those compromises will come along the lines of the same things that the culture around them is pressing on them to adopt. They'll call themselves Christians and yet go on to adopt the things that God has clearly said are wrong. And again, those same things, it's going to be those same things that the culture is telling you to adopt. So for us, that's going to be homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, adultery in general, but also it's going to be the sins of racism and nationalism or greed, just to name a few. There is the God who is, friends, and the God who isn't. The two are not the same. God cannot approve of the worship of Moloch and the Messiah, nor can God approve of one set of standards and a contradictory set of standards at the same time. Friends, either Christ is Lord or he isn't. And either the revelation of his word is true or it isn't. But it cannot be both, as Solomon evidently tried to have it. And as we see such behavior, this sort of taking the name of God and calling oneself sort of uh, in Christ, calling oneself a Christian and still worshiping or approving other things that are sin, angers God. We see that. Look down there in verse 9 and 10. The Lord was angry because, it says, the Lord had commanded him not to go after other gods. Right? It says in there, the Lord Lord spoke to him discernibly, to Solomon, two times. Said, don't do this. Don't go after other gods. And we also know, if you guys remember back to chapter 2, remember some of the final words of his father, David, said to him, don't go after other gods. Love God. Follow his commands. And, of course, Solomon would have also known Deuteronomy 17. Such an important text for this passage. Solomon would have known that passage, which is there laying out the expectations for the kings of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 17, which Solomon would have known, we learn that there are three things that the kings must not do and one thing that they must do. And the three things that they must not do, Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17 says, the one thing they should, first thing is do not go after a bunch of horses from Egypt. In other words, don't rely upon those dudes. Don't acquire many wives for yourselves because they'll turn your heart away. And don't acquire excessive silver and gold. All three things the author marks out, that's exactly what he did. The three things that God said that Israel's kings cannot do. And the one thing that they were to do in Deuteronomy 17 was to write down the law for themselves. It'd basically be like a king today, sort of writing out an entire Bible so that they would fear the Lord and follow his word. And again, these exact things are what Solomon or what the author marks out for us that Solomon did not do. And notice again that he never actually denies the Lord. It says that his heart was not wholly true, but he just adds these other idols. 
and his heart got turned away. And likewise, beloved, when we idolize other things, the same is true for us. When we claim to love God but oppose what he's told us to do or not do, we too will find ourselves under the anger and judgment of God. But I want to be clear about something here, guys. I want to be clear about how this turning away works. This move from loving God to loving foreign women and stuff, it didn't happen overnight. Just like it doesn't happen overnight with us. It was a kind of slow fade, a kind of one degree to another. Slow. Look at verse 4. It says, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart. In other words, it took time. Just go back and think about it as we look back over these sermons that we've been looking through in the text. Remember when he asked for wisdom from God to rule God's people well. It's when he was a young man, newly, uh, newly appointed to this role as king. And then seven years later, remember we look back in 1 Kings 8, that beautiful prayer of dedication to the temple. Still a young man, still less than 10 years into the job, as it were. We even learn about Solomon writing many Proverbs, right? The book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. Solomon was the same guy that wrote these words when, it was, when he was addressing sexual immorality. Solomon wrote Proverbs 5.23 when it says, He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly he is led away. Solomon wrote those words when he was a young man. and He didn't listen to them. Slowly, he accumulated wealth and power and women And his heart was subtly and slowly moved away from loving God to, in this case, loving other women and their gods. And the effect of that slow fade away from God led to both temporal and eternal destruction. But again, it all began with just some small compromises that probably seemed reasonable at the time until Solomon became unrecognizable to the faith. And again, the problem was his heart, his desires. That was the engine. Listen to James 1, 14 to 15. This is the last book we looked at. Y'all remember this? Uh, when it says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Guys, Solomon's desires was the problem. And so it is with us. Our desires are the battleground, not merely our beliefs not merely our behaviors. We've got to dig down to the level of desire in order to see who we are and who we're becoming. And for Solomon, his desires, his loves, was for all the besetting sins that are so common to us still today. Money, sex, power, and people. And all of these sins led to Solomon's death. We know the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death, and that's what Solomon experienced. You look at the end of the passage, 1 Kings eleven forty-two to 43. And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. Led by his own desires and love, Solomon slowly but ever so clearly headed towards his own destruction, taking Israel with him. And again, beloved, it is here that the author means to instruct us today. Verse 10, don't go after other gods. Don't follow idols. Now, we're not tempted by the gods of the Amorites today. We are tempted by other things that we take as more valuable than God. Don't value people, places, or things more than you value God. Guard your heart. That's what the text is trying to say. Solomon was warned time and time again. He heard from God on two occasions. He heard from his father. And so, beloved, remember, we've been looking at this, Romans 14, 1 Peter 1, teach us the Old Testament was written for our instruction. And so let's learn from Solomon. Let's apply these four things. Let's think about money, sex, power, and people and the ways in which we can idolize them and have our own hearts turned away. Let's learn about this so that we don't wind up like Solomon. All right? Let's dive in here. Let's consider money. Joey gave us a lot to think about last week, but here we we learn that Solomon was was told to not accumulate excessive wealth, and yet he did it. 
Jesus also addresses the desires, addresses the heart and the level. Uh, uh, and as it relates to money, when he tells us in Matthew six twenty one, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You say, well, maybe you can. No, no, no. Jesus says, you can't. It's not possible. Solomon is exhibit A of that passage. Again, the possession of wealth is not a sin in and of itself. Otherwise, most of us in this room would be condemned. It's the need to serve money and what it can buy you. That's the problem. You cannot serve both God and money. 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money. Note again the desire, the engine is desire, is heart. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, including Saul. And the way this might happen is maybe people's career becomes more and more important to them so they can accumulate more and more wealth, so they can buy more and more things that they desire. Or maybe they desire to be married, but they they put it off so they can accumulate more and more wealth. Or they take something God says as a blessing, children, and they put that off so as to try, again, to accumulate more and more of what money can buy them. Maybe if they do have a family, they are satisfied to be away from that family night after night, weekend after weekend, because they, again, want to accumulate more and more money. And God, in his word, withers away in that person's heart. Slowly, the things of God become less and less important to them. And maybe it, for them, maybe it begins by just the devaluing of gathering with God's people on a Sunday morning. And maybe they, maybe they say to themselves, well, I'll just watch the service online. And maybe they begin to say, well, you know, God, after all, God really only really cares about a personal relationship, so I'll just read the Bible and pray on my own. Just neglecting all of those one another commands, neglecting the call to make disciples. And then before you know it, like Solomon, they've accumulated so much wealth, so much debt, that it becomes indisputable as to who their master really is. They work for money and what for money and what money can buy them. Maybe they're surrounded by nice cars and padded by bank accounts, trips to Paris or Rome, a closet full of clothes. They kind of have a veneer of Christianity, but like Solomon, they are not wholly true to the Lord because their heart has turned away to those idols. But of course, more often than not, it won't be that for us, will it? It won't be extravagant. Instead, it will be for us the American dream of a house, a car, some nice annual vacations with a financially secure savings account with a well-funded 401k that will fund our kids through college and maybe get us a house to retire in. Again, in and of themselves, these things are not wrong, but it's when they become more important to us than building treasures in heaven rather than on earth where rust and moth destroy. There's the problem. And we can discern when we're serving money, not God, on really two things. We evaluate two things. Consumer-based debt and the funding of the treasuring of Christ. As it relates to debt, if you are funding a lifestyle that is demanding you spend beyond your monthly or annual income, you've likely begun to love money more than God. Or secondly, if you are unable to regularly and generously and gladly and to support the financially support the making of disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ, you're just not very interested or able to do much of that. That likewise would indicate that your heart is beginning to love money more than it loves God. Set. Next to money, surely this is our culture's chief idol. Loving sex more than loving God. Sexual desire proved to be the final gust of wind that blew down Solomon's house. And so it is for throngs of people, not only in America, but around the world since the dawn of time. Sexual desire led Solomon's father David into his worst set of circumstances. Abraham's pragmatic sexual decisions led to all kinds of carnage. The polygamous nature of the Israelites that we read about in the book of Samuel and the book of Judges led to that famous line that everyone did what is right in his own eyes. And there's just a mess everywhere. 
Sodom and Gomorrah is the definition of the destructive nature of sexual desires. Men beating down doors to have their way with other men. So terrible, the Lord himself visited it with judgment. And of course, these kinds of things are not limited to stories in the Old Testament. Sexual immorality and those that approve of sexual immorality is used as the backbone of Paul's argument in Romans 1 to describe God's judgment on a people. In Romans 1, Paul says that God just lets them have their sexual desires. It's his, what we would call his passive judgment. That's the backbone of his desire or backbone of his argument that God is judging a people. He just gives them over to their sexual desires. And in the last book of the Bible, we read in Revelation 2.24 that uh, sexual practices of those outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is deemed the deep things of Satan. Revelation 2.24. Paul even says that sexual immorality is not only a sin spiritually, but it's deeper because it's a sin of the body. And friend, we just think about the reality of this. Can you imagine? What do you think life was like for Solomon's 363rd wife or his 123rd concubine? Do you think those women experienced anything like what Paul writes about in Ephesians 5 of their husbands loving them like Christ loved the church, sacrificially devoted? Do you think their life was anything like that? Did they experience the security and the beauty and the sacrifice of a husband? Those women. Beloved, as you heard Chris prayed, sex is a good gift from God, meant to be enjoyed and participated in regularly inside the covenant of marriage. Sex is a beautiful and good thing. But like any good thing, when it is twisted and contorted to try and fit people's own selfish base desires, it plays into those deep things of Satan. It deceives people into using others for one's own benefit instead of serving others in the one flesh union of a marriage between a man and a woman. I was watching an episode of Shark Tank a week or two ago where I saw a woman had invented a thing that was sort of like a scrunchie for her hair. It could also be used to put over as a cover on a drink so that somebody doesn't come by and drop a pill in it so as to take advantage of the woman. That's where we are. We need stuff like that. Kids are being exposed to sexual immorality at younger and younger ages, sometimes even being taught in schools. The porn industry rakes in more income than the combined revenue of ABC, NBC, and CBS. The porn industry creating and sustaining the sexual trafficking industry. You participate in porn, you are participating in the sexual trafficking industry. Porn industry also creating expectations in relationships that are harmful and untenable, not to mention unloving. Porn is damaging to even the most normal of marriages because of the way that it not only rewires expectations, but it literally biologically rewires your brain. Television shows and movies seem to slip in adulterous relationships and innuendos so regularly that they become normalized. We almost expect them. Sexual immorality has become so ubiquitous to us that we don't even blush when we see an image or hear of an innuendo on our favorite TV show. We just keep watching. We've become desanitized to it all. Some of you know that story I've told of watching one movie that I thought by the end of it was just a fantastic movie because it ended so happily. And then it never dawned on me until about a day later that I enjoyed and thought it was a great movie that this man cheated on his wife with another woman. But because he ended up with her by the end of the movie, I thought it was a great movie. I I had become desensitized. And even in these TV shows and movies that we watch, how many of them actually reference sex inside the covenant of marriage? It's happy and glad. It's rare. Very few are depicted like that, if any, I would guess. And yet the reality is every study proves this out more and more people are increasingly dissatisfied sexually. Except one group of people. Studies would show every group of people more dissatisfied except one group of people. There are one group of people who seem to enjoy sex more and more with age. And it happens to be the very same people that are rarely depicted and often chastised and made fun of. 
a monogamous, heterosexual marriage. But one group of people, every study will show you, that are increasingly happy sexually. And that shouldn't surprise us, right? That's the Lord's design. It's what the Lord designed for our joy and his glory. And I should note, beloved, these sins of sexual immorality are here in the church. We have, uh, we too are guilty of participating in these sins. We have no room in the church to stand over the culture in self-righteousness. From compromised dating relationships to porn use, friends, sexual immorality is sadly a known reality in the church. Thus, the need for this instruction from Solomon, as well as the many commands in the New Testament. And so, beloved, I plead with you for the glory of Christ, for the witness of his church, and the good of your own soul. Flee sexual morality. Do whatever it takes to walk that clear and beautiful line that God calls you. Flee from sexual immorality. Fight for a greater pleasure in Christ. Don't just put something away. Add something that's better. This sin destroyed Solomon and Israel. It is destroying marriages and families and children and individual lives even now. Beloved, we are not the better for our unhinged views of sex. We are not the better for it. And I feel less and less of a reason to even try and convince people of that anymore. Sexual immorality is ruining us in so many ways. And beloved, Scripture has prophesied that hundreds and hundreds of years ago. As Jesus says, gouge out eye, cut off hand. In other words, do whatever it takes to not make shipwreck of your faith by not participating in or approving of sexual immorality of any kind, but instead pursue the greater joy of Christ and follow his good and gracious commands that lead you to a better place. You become what you behold. You become what you love, not necessarily what you say you believe. Solomon loved his own sexual desires more than he loved God, and it ruined him and the people that he was made to serve. Don't let that be you. Power. Power certainly is one of our city's chief idols. One might even go so far as to say that New York and Hollywood are marked by their sins of greed and sex. D.C. is marked by its quest for power. From the smallest NGO to the quest to live at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, people will do almost anything to get what they want, including accumulating power, sometimes for otherwise good things. But friends, even good things advanced in sinful ways is idolatry. Because again, it's placing those things more important than God. Solomon compromised on what, what, what he was told by the Lord and by his father David and by the scripture itself to be wrong in order to accumulate more power for himself, and it ruined him, and it ruined Israel. He made those marriages alliances. You heard that last week and all kinds of other things. And we remember, right, Solomon was instructed. Don't forget this. Solomon was, was instructed that to prosper as king was to understand himself to be under a greater authority. That's how the best people use authority. That's how the best people use powers, understanding they're under a greater power of God. But somewhere along the way, Solomon lost sight of that. He started thinking too highly of himself and his own agenda. Instead of wielding his wisdom for the good of the people, he started abusing his position for the good of himself. And that's how you know that power is leading you away. When you are willing to compromise on God's clear revelation in order to accomplish your own personal agenda. How many times did we hear in those first 11 chapters, those lines about walking in the Lord's ways, keeping his statutes and commandments and his rules and testimonies? We've heard that time and again, haven't we? And if you've forgotten that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to Joey's uh, exposition on how those rules, how those commandments are not just chains that we throw on, but instead they're good, beautiful commands that lead us to goodness. Yet even though Solomon knew those commands, even he prayed them to be obeyed on the day of the temple's dedication, they became less and less important to him, less and less binding to his conscience, and instead he started listening more and more to his own desires. And he was becoming what he loved, not necessarily what he said he believed. He loved his vision for Israel, not God's. So, beloved, whatever position you have, whatever 
kind of authority you have, whatever kind of power you have from student to grunt level employee to manager to mother, father, husband, wife, elder, deacon, CG leader, whatever. He's given you, God has given you that power so that you might use it to show of the greater worth and power of Christ. That's why you have it. That's why you have that power, that authority. Whatever authority you have is given to you by God so that you might use it to show others the greatness of the glory of Christ as king. That's why Jesus said that the greatest among you is the greatest servant of all. And of course, we see that in the gospel itself where Jesus takes his authority and he holds on to his authority, but he denies himself and takes up a cross that you might share in his power. You become what you love, not necessarily what you say you believe. And when it comes to power, learn from Solomon and learn to love service in God's ways, not bullying others to serve you in your own ways for your own agenda. Do this, beloved, and not only will you live, but those around you will thrive under your authority. One more. The idol of people. The love of money, sex, power, and people were the desire of Solomon such that it lured him into one small compromise after another until he found himself angering God by worshiping other idols. This idol of people for him was, at least in this case, more women. And while we are likely not tempted to marry many foreign women, we are tempted, aren't we, to do whatever it takes to get into the uh, good graces of other people that we might value. Solomon compromised on his doctrine and practice in order to cling to other women in love. So for us, we might compromise among our friend groups at school. Kids, that's going to be really tempting for you. Or uh, at the office, we compromise on those so that we don't appear like those kinds of Christians. We want to fit in. We want to be accepted by that desirable group of people. We're tempted to let this doctrine or that practice go so that we might receive the love of people. Many times, those same people are opposed to the faith. All of us are tempted. All of us are tempted. I'm tempted in some ways. We're all tempted by the love of people. And probably the most tempting category in terms of the idol of people is the very same one that Solomon succumbed to. Marriage. Marriage. Some of us are scared they they are going to be alone their whole life. Others simply want to be loved by a spouse. Still others want children because there are plenty of good reasons why people want to be married. I'm married. Plenty of good reasons. Paul even lists the reason of sexual fidelity in 1 Corinthians 7. The reasons are many and the reasons are good to be married. And the temptation then is strong to make compromises as Solomon did. But we see where it wound him up. His heart turned away from the Lord and he wound up serving the idols of those he married as he clung to them in love. And it's happened countless times since. One confessing Christian falls in love with a non-Christian or they convince themselves that the person they marry loves Jesus more than they actually do. And once the newness of the relationship wears off and the pursuit of one another enters into the phase of the regular kind of humdrum of the daily life, the real spiritual state of the other is exposed. And it becomes evident that they have little to no interest in the gospel. And at that point, a choice has to be made. Either they will go against the practices of their spouse and follow Christ wholeheartedly, difficult though that lifestyle will be, or they do as Solomon does and just begin adopting the beliefs and practices of their spouse. You become what you love, not necessarily what you say you believe. And for the singles in the room, the Lord is calling you to something I know that can be hard. And I want to be clear about something. I talked to one single brother this week as I had him read this. And he said to me very quickly, he's not married, and he's exactly right. Marriage is hard. It's not like you move from one hard thing to something that's easy. Those of you that have done your your premarital counseling, what's the first thing I tell you every single time? Marriage is hard. It's work. But nevertheless, singles in the room, the Lord is calling you to something I know that can be hard. He's calling you to not compromise on your love for the one true and living God. He's calling you, don't compromise on that. What Joey said about singleness years ago has stuck with me over all these years. 
As Joey said years ago, while marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows the sufficiency of the gospel. Singles, your commitment to follow Christ and not compromise on your love for Christ in order to marry, it not only presents you, as Paul says, with other opportunities of ministry, but it also teaches people like me that are married that Christ is enough. He's enough. And I know that we in the church don't always do a good job of highlighting that sufficiency. I understand that there are plenty of times in which sometimes the church, maybe even this church, has made it look as though in order to, you have to, in order to be mature, you've got to be married. That is wrong. Right? Jesus, Paul were single all of their lives. They were most certainly the uh, epitome of maturity. And so I want to be clear that any kind of teaching that says that in order to be mature in the faith is means you have to get married, I just want to be want it to be clear from this pulpit, that is a lie from the pits of hell. So I want to thank you singles for the ways that you instruct we marriage to remain committed to the Lord and not compromise in doctrine or in practice on God's clear revelation. I know it can be hard and disappointing and heart-wrenching, but beloved, stay faithful. Don't compromise. Be instructed by Solomon here. You become what you love. Love Christ and be committed to those that will do the same. Only be committed to those that will do the same. Don't compromise and have your heart turned away. Okay. Let's just briefly look here at the consequences of giving in to these sins. Look at the consequences of Solomon who did compromise and money, six power, and people. Because Solomon broke the covenant with God, making his practice to serve idols, the Lord, it says, promises to tear the kingdom apart. But he's merciful. It's amazing the mercy of God in this passage. He's merciful in that he won't do it in Solomon's days, but instead he'll have the kingdom be torn apart in his son's days. Look at verse 14. We learn there that the Lord raises up these adversaries of Solomon. He raises up three adversaries to Solomon. We get this guy named Hadad, who is an Edomite. Right? He's going to be to the south of Israel. He's a leftover of one of David's previous conquests. He, he takes refuge in Egypt only to come back during Solomon's reign to cause problems. And then in verse 23, we get this dude named Rezin who's going to go on to be the king of Syria. He's going to be a problem for Israel to the north. So we've got a problem to the north, problem to the south. And then, then we get one on the very doorstep of Israel, Jeroboam. We're going to learn a lot about Jeroboam in the coming weeks. We learn in verse 29 that the prophet Ahijah uh, meets Jeroboam on the road and tells him that he's going to be king of 10 of the 12 tribes. God even tells him that he will give him the same deal that he made with David. He's sort of like, all right, listen, Israel, they kind of broke their car lease over here. I'll give you that same lease on this car if you'll do the same thing. And what we're going to learn is that Jeroboam not only goes the same way as the rest of Israel's kings, but he's among the worst, Jeroboam. Everything is set up now. Remember how, you guys remember how I started? Remember how we started with the end of book of the book of Kings? Remember we fast forwarded to the end. We saw a terrible us. Now we know how it all begins to go south. Everything is set up for everything to crumble now. It's beginning to make sense. This is teaching us that we will have to look the book of Kings. This is so important. If you lose sight of this, if you're tuned out, come back in. The whole point of Kings is to tell you You're going to have to look beyond Solomon for a better king. That's what Kings is doing. You're going to have to look beyond Solomon for a better king that would build a better, more sure house. Sadly, the downfall all began with Solomon's small compromises because of a greater love for other things than God himself, reminding us that there are consequences to our sinful decisions. God is and will judge the nation. Our sinful choices to love other things more than God from the most private of decisions to the most public, they will be dealt with in one way or another. So don't be fooled. Love anything more than God, and you may prosper as Solomon did for a short time, but eventually you will know what Israel knew, division, destruction, and exile away from God forever. But one thing you should do, beloved, every time you should hear an Old Testament sermon, you better make sure the pastor gets to Jesus. We haven't gotten there yet, have we? Here we go. I don't want to leave us in that uh, without looking to Jesus. 
Old Testament was written to point to Jesus. That's the whole point. That's the way Jesus read his Bible. Take a look at the words to Jeroboam there in verse 39. He's talking about this affliction, this tearing apart. God is talking about this. Uh, Ahijah is talking to him. God is speaking through him. And the Lord says, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, because of their sin, but not forever. Insert into the movie, a little bit of hope, but not forever. Judgment coming down, but not forever. Beloved, in the fullness of time, God sent his very own son to the city of David as the son of David, and Jesus got the throne of David. And there in that son, Jesus, on the cross, Jesus satisfies God's anger over all of our idolatry, all of our sin of money, sex, power, and people. Jesus, for those that trust and treasure him on the cross, the reason why the cross is so heinous, so ugly, so horrible, is because Jesus is satisfying all of God's anger. Like he put God's anger, came upon Solomon and Israel, and he put it there and gave him exile for all of our sin, all the ways in which we have angered God because of our sin. All of that came down on Jesus. This is that beautiful, rich word you need to know, propitiation, the quenching of God's wrath. The son of David, Jesus, the greater Solomon, comes, lives a faithful life unlike Solomon. And so, therefore, he is uniquely able to assuage, to satisfy God's anger for our sin on the cross. He, Jesus Christ, unlike Solomon, he was faithful to his one wife, the church. He never left her or forsake her. He loved her and served her with a greater wisdom than Solomon. He never left her, never forsook her. He had no other gods before the one true and living God. He loved her enough to offer his life as a ransom for many. He loved us enough to offer his life for our sins. Jesus, the true and lasting offspring of David, atoned on the cross for all of the sins that we have committed, for the ways that we have loved money, sex, power, and people more than him. And because Jesus did that for all that trust in him, because he was faithful to all of the Father's commands that he didn't compromise, he was then able to purchase with his wealth his wife back from the dead. His sins was the death of our sin. That's why we sang that song. That's why we love singing that song. His resurrection is our resurrection life. That we can look square-eyed into the sins of Solomon and say, yes and amen, so go I. But that is not my story. I have a better story that Christ has overcome. And he is working all that junk out of my heart day after day as I give myself to him and he to me. Jesus was able to defeat the wages of sin, which is death. He's the only one that has, by the way. And so while Solomon would sleep with his fathers, Jesus would only sleep with his fathers for three days. He rises from the dead. And now in the resurrection and in the ascension, Jesus is sitting on the throne of David in heaven itself. Ruling. And by the power of his spirit working through his people, he is patiently and persisting, cleansing us by the washing of the water of the word. He is now, Jesus is now building a better house than that one that Solomon built years ago. It's more sure because it's built on better promises. And so as we give ourselves to him in love, he he loves us by appealing what? Not just to our behaviors, but to the engine, to our desires, to our loves, to our affections. Beloved, you become what you love, not necessarily what you believe. And King Jesus is appealing to your heart this morning. He first loved you. So now may you love him first and foremost. No other idols above him. By obeying his good commands, right? Isn't that what he said? Go make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. And because he's done the finished work, because he's atoned for sin, because he's defeated it in the resurrection, because he's ascended and sent the spirit to live within us, now we can obey in ways that Solomon could not because Christ had not yet atoned for that sin. King Jesus is appealing to you to love him. Love the one that left the treasures in heaven so as to make you a saint on the earth. Love the one that is faithful to you, his wife, the bride, the church. Love the one that gave up his power so that you might share in his. Love the one that didn't idolize the approval of people so that you don't have to be ruled by them. Love Christ in the power of the gospel. 
love Jesus and be ruled by his better, more perfect desires for you. Let his good commands become your desire because you trust him and you trust his ways. You give yourself to your heavenly husband, following his good, pleasing, and perfect will for your life. Stewarding, listen, stewarding your money, stewarding your sex life, stewarding your power, stewarding the people around you for the greatness of his glory, for the exaltation of his name, and the joy of your soul and that of your neighbors. That's why all of those things exist in your life. Money, sex, power, and people, all those are given to you or not given to you, depending on where you are, so as to make much of Christ, to see your neighbors flourish, and they are in that you flourish. And you can do that not because you are strong, but because he is in you. You become what you love. And so love King Jesus by gazing upon his glory, his faithfulness, his beauty, his power, his love, his might, every single. Growing up in it. Some of you know that some of the last lines that Solomon wrote, um, or at least I should say he wrote these words probably as a younger man in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, all else is vanity. And then he ends with this. Solomon's words. The end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands. For this is the whole duty of man. Everything else is meaningless, he says, except that. People tell me all the time, Nathan, I'm having trouble with the book of Ecclesiastes. Just get to the end, get to the end. Fear God and his commandments. Solomon didn't do that. Jesus did. So now you can, we can, and we can be a better picture of a better house that is not fading, that is not spoiling. We can show that there's something of greater worth than money, sex, power. We give ourselves to him because we have a greater love than those things. Pray together. God, thank you that we can the one place that we could come in every single week and just be honest about our failures, about our idols, about our ways in which we're not living out what we say we believe. Thank you for this place of freedom. Because Jesus, you said to bring our burdens to you. And Lord, we're mindful of the burden of our own sin, the ways in which we failed in money, sex, power, and people, just as Solomon did. But oh, the joy to consider that the greater Solomon was faithful with his money, was faithful with sex, was faithful with power, was faithful with people. And because he was, our sins are overcome in the cross for those that trust him and treasure him and follow him. Now we can be empowered to live that life that you intended. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And teach our hearts, God, to love you and put away all these idols. Help us to orient our lives around the greater love of Jesus the greater Solomon, the true and lasting king, whose kingdom will not be torn down. Our hope is in you. Empower us towards these ends. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.